Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Their son went to school and shot it up and killed four kids. Jennifer Crumbly is facing involuntary manslaughter charges. This is the first American parent to be charged with their child's mass school shooting. Jennifer Crumbly told the jury she wouldn't have done anything differently before her son's attack. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. You never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. In this case, it's so egregious what had happened that this is not going to set a precedent for every other case, because we've never seen anything like this before. Every piece of evidence seems to indicate she lacks all empathy for other human beings. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish you would have killed us instead. Where is the line of criminal responsibility for a parent? Find her guilty for four counts of involuntary Oh, welcome back to the Spiro Avenue show. Bit of a somber intro and perhaps fitting for the topic. And it's obviously a, a difficult one to cover uh, for, in a number of ways, really. I mean, you're talking about a school shooting, the ultimate manifestation of tragedy in our country, I would argue. And in our case, particularly hitting close to home, we sit about eight minutes away from Oxford High School where that tragedy took place. We covered this really from the beginning with an incredible attorney, one of the top in the Midwest, if not the country, a couple years ago. So we've been really on top of this from the beginning. And I wanted to bring him back as we kind of get back into this now that we're in the second of three phases. We The shooters tried and convicted. Now we're on to the first of two parents. Fascinating topic. He's, he's going to be the top guy, I would argue, for this subject. A brilliant defense attorney. We'll get his credentials. Ben, throw them up there for this audience. <laughs> this this guy's incredible. I, I just have to say, I cannot say a, a nice, uh, nice things, enough nice things about Wade Fink and his credentials, his, his reputation in town is impeccable. Secured the release of 12 people from prison since 2019. Three life sentences reversed. And he's been featured in the New York Times, CNN, Fox News, Real Time with Bill Maher, all places that have never mentioned me in any capacity. <laughs> and this is my favorite, a new addition to the dossier for this gentleman. Deborah Gordon, renowned labor attorney, who was a previous guest on Off the Curb here at Spiro Avenue, said Wade is brilliant. <laughs> that was Deborah Gordon, who's arguably the top labor attorney in the country. Wade Fink, renowned, respected, well-known defense attorney <laughs> around town. Welcome back, man. You come everywhere with me and, you know, the courtroom. Hyping you up. My clients and new clients. I appreciate that. That was very kind, Justin. Thanks for having me back. Well, yeah, Carl Weathers died. He famously played Apollo Creed. He passed away today. And I, I'm trying to be like the Duke, like the guy standing behind Apollo. Like, best <laughs> of all time. Best of all time. That's you. I appreciate You're, it, man. You're too kind, and it's 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 uh, very nice of you to say that. Well, when you know when you have Deborah Gordon, who's represented everybody <laughs> it, worth a damn, is singing your praises. That's pretty high uh, praise. She's one so. of my heroes, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, she's the best. She's the best. So I, I think here's here's where I want to start because this is a complex web, and it's kind of a mess. There's a lot there. The closing statements alone between the two of them are like four hours long. Let's just revisit our initial discussion from almost two years ago now. You discussed the problems, the challenges with pursuing this unprecedented charge against the parents 
of a school shooter. No real precedent for it. This is a groundbreaking case, and there's a reason why it's attracted so much national attention. About two years ago on the show, you, you outlined some of the reasons why this will be a challenge. Now that we're in the moment, let's look back. Ben, roll that for us, please. The uphill battle for prosecutors is not that they acted negligently. They absolutely acted negligently. I don't see one reasonable juror concluding that these parents weren't negligent. The question is, did those negligent acts, whatever they were, however numerous, can you say that those caused the death of Tate, Madison, Hannah, and Justin? Can you say that? And I don't know. What had to happen, you know, what was reasonably foreseeable and necessary consequence of that action was the murder of four children. Now, if I and I can't necessarily say that not locking up a gun and not taking the kid home from school necessarily leads to the consequence of four children being murdered. Now, that episode, you prefaced a lot of these things with, look, we haven't seen a lot of the evidence yet. You know, there are a lot of caveats in there out of necessity. You've seen a lot more now. You've been following this proceeding. We'll get to your quotes on it in the newspaper in a minute. What's your read on that? I mean, do you think they've come close to meeting their burden? Like, how do you just feel it's gone generally? I do not envy you know, the jurors who are processing this information. And frankly, watching that clip back is interesting because I kind of feel the same way. Um, I'm even more convinced now than ever of uh, the parental neglect. Um, I think uh, I think I may feel even more strongly, and I felt pretty strong back then that gross negligence might not have been a, a, a tough uh, burden to reach for the prosecutors. And I feel that way now, given the evidence, given what we know, um, not only about the uh, behavior or, or the acts and omissions beforehand, the the math assignments, the going to school and not taking them home and some of those other things. But what happened after really informs the mindset from from what happened before, how they may have treated uh, the shooter beforehand. I mean, the narcissism by Jennifer Crumley, uh, the concern for herself and herself only and the the instead of expressing remorse and what she could have changed to instead try to justify herself as somehow a good parent or I couldn't have possibly done better. I mean, it's absurd. And that's, I think that's hard for, I think that'll be hard for any human, any parent or any non-parent, even just a human to get over that kind of, uh, that selfishness is, is how it struck me. However, <clears throat> having said that, my Larry David comment, having said that, um, I still think reasonable foreseeability is very difficult. And if I was a juror, that's the only way I can probably give you an opinion on it. I, I think I'm leaning towards conviction. Uh, I think I am leaning towards um, uh, finding enough here that there were such glaring omissions and such, such uh, egregious uh, uh, poor parenting that it, yeah, it did became reasonably foreseeable that someone was going to get hurt buying that gun, celebrating it, not putting it in a situation where it was unreachable. The bullets found in his bedroom, um, you know, the targets in his room, the thoughts won't stop blood everywhere. I mean, <laughs> this becomes a situation where, yeah, I mean, it is getting foreseeable. This guy, this kid might hurt someone, maybe himself. And, and if and that's what I found interesting, and maybe we'll get into this is kind of the concession that, you know, there was a worry about suicide. Well, that's making it reasonably foreseeable that he might be violent, right, even to himself. So I have come a long way on thinking that the, the proofs might be there. But I'm not fully convinced, and I would never call anyone unreasonable to feel differently. Um, for, for what uh, Shannon Smith may lack in uh, tact, 
or, or certain things that I would have done differently, maybe the way I would have expressed things. She is right to a certain extent that there is a, a slippery slope argument that maybe parents might appreciate. And I think I said this on the last show. Um, there are a lot of children who struggle for various reasons and a lot of great parents who try to help those children and sometimes just can't. So I worry about the, the precedent or the idea that um, we're going to hold parents responsible for something um, so heinous and so intentional as this. Uh, and I wouldn't call anyone unreasonable for having those worries. But I guess what I'm saying is this is so unique and so far down the spectrum of bad parenting that uh, I'm almost inclined and I watched pretty much the whole trial to say that I would be comfortable convicting. I mean, here's here's the distinction between a lot of these cases, oh, slippery slope, what, you know, other school shooters, whatever. It's not just the degree of the bad parenting, the negligence. To me, it's the gun and the nature of the gun and how it got there. They bought it for him. This is not like Columbine, where the two shooters involved were getting it from friends of theirs that were older and parents had no idea they were actually quite anti-gun. Right. Like this is, that to me is what this hinges on. Like if I'm a bar, you're a defense attorney. I mean, jump, correct me if I'm wrong, jump in. Uh, someone, if you overserve, those, the bar can be held liable in, in part for whatever damages, you know, if you go kill somebody while you're bombed on the road. Like you provided the alcohol in excess that created, you know, the downstream negative outcome. Does the gun not seem to be more relevant than even, oh, they didn't take him home? Or, like it's the gun. They bought him the gun. They, you said celebrated the gun. They did not secure the gun. It's the gun. So I don't think this is, oh, what are we doing here? This is unique based on the gun. Absolutely. And the gun in conjunction with those other things. I mean, if he got a gun on his own somehow, and even if the parent probably should have known or there was some other circumstance, then maybe this is different. But you're absolutely right. That's the linchpin of the whole thing is purchasing the gun, not securing it and, and, and all that goes with it in conjunction with the other acts and omissions that I find to be neglectful. So, so absolutely is the answer to that question. I think that's the most important. And I found, you know, there was, there was an example during closing. I don't mean to jump ahead of schedule if you're going to ask me this later, but there was an example by Shannon Smith given in closing and personalized this way too much for my, for my taste, but nevertheless, the point um, she was trying to make, I, I think you want to make, but the example didn't make sense. She gave an example of, you know, if you give your kid a cell phone and he starts sexting with a, you know, with a minor in high school, are you now responsible because you provided that phone for, you know, possessing pornography or engaging in that somehow? You know, phone does a few other things besides sext, right? It makes phone calls, it gives you access to your email and information. There's a reason we have phones. You purchase a gun for someone. I mean, I, I guess, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a gun guy, so I don't necessarily get the hobby part of it. But when you purchase a gun, there's a particular purpose for a gun. It shoots and it, it, it can harm. Right. And doing that for a minor who we now know that you either knew or should have known had mental issues is fundamentally different from that example or any of the examples that uh, Shannon Smith and the defense tried to present as uh, what's dangerous about the precedent setting here. This is so unique in that sense. And that's why I feel that this is when I say the spectrum of conduct, this is way towards the most egregious. Yeah, it all falls on the gun. That's the bottom line. If everything else in the fact pattern was the same. They didn't know where he was. They ignored his pleas for help and all, the, all that stuff. Everything was the same, but he found the gun in a dumpster and used it. 
Right. That completely changes the whole thing. I think we're not talking enough about the gun. And that's where I think this is different from other cases. You made an interesting, uh, well, series of comments, I guess, a few comments in the Detroit News as this thing started to pick up. <laughs> and Jennifer Crumbly, it is revealed, will be testifying in her own trial. And that's not really common in cases that are not self-defense or insanity cases, as you pointed out. Ben, roll those up for us, Wade's comments. You were somewhat critical of the decision, or at least um, curious about it. This is you in the Detroit News. Quote, if she gets up there and tries to defend her parenting or offer explanations for it, all you're going to do is inflame passions. So you were critical of the decision, I think, to put her up there. And I think you had some level of vindication because for all we can talk about, the law is all that matters. What actually happens? Did you satisfy it or not? The elements of the crime. Perception matters. I don't think she did well here, but in one case in particular, I think she really got tripped up and we'll get to that later. But as a general matter, that was your opinion before she was on the stand. You were curious about it saying, oh, I don't know if that's such a good idea. That might make things worse. Now that we've seen her testify, statements, the closing statements have been issued. Like, where are you at? Do you kind of reaffirm your belief there that that was a mistake? She was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> yeah. And, and she was a disaster. If she, let me be clear about something, Justin, too. Jennifer Crumley, the defense team, they can win this case or, or certainly could achieve a, a hung jury. I'm not, um, you know, being Nostradamus and saying it will be guilty. I'm telling you how I feel about the evidence. Just if I was a juror, she could very well win this case. I assure you, with my experience and background, what you were kind enough to put on there, it will be in spite of her testimony, not because of it. She was exactly what I expected her to be in that moment and why I, I uh, gave the opinion I did. I had a bad feeling that the whole purpose of that was she was chomping at the bit to justify her, her motherly instincts and being a good mother and good person. And this hasn't been fair. Years and years of saying I'm a bad parent. And that's precisely, and if your goal is to win or maximize your chance of winning, precisely the ground I would never fight on. You know, you can, you can make this case sympathetic to jurors and say, you know, how heartbroken and, and, and how remorseful she must feel and what she could have done differently she, every day, but she could have never foreseen this. And that's where you fight on causation and foreseeability. And even though I should have done things better and I wasn't as good as I could have been and I'm broken about that, I still couldn't have foreseen this and nobody could. That's a reasonable argument and it might carry the day. It still might carry the day to go up there and say that I wouldn't change anything to try to to try to justify your decision to leave him at school, blame the school. You know, sure. Does the school have some uh, some things I wish they would have done differently? Of course. But to blame everybody else and not take responsibility for yourself when he draws a picture of the very gun he used to murder four children. I mean, if you're going to do it, and I never would have put her up there, um, but if you're going to do it, you know, own some of the problems and be honest And that. I think that would go a long way with the human beings on the jury to be um, to be honest about the fact that you, you wish you would have done a million things differently. Now, you just couldn't have possibly foreseen it in the moment. That's a reasonable, logical argument. It all follows. And when I said inflamed passions, it made me angry as a parent. I got a little girl. Oh, you got children that go to school and we're responsible or I, we're, uh, we're relying on other parents to be responsible, right? 
for the well-being of our children is small things like don't send them to school when they're extremely sick, right? Or to, to things like this. And to listen to that, um, that I've lost everything, the, the, the trying to make this about her and rebuilding her own character is just, it, to me, it was disastrous. And I, again, I don't think it necessarily means she's going to lose. I just don't think it was the right strategy decision. And but it matters that she was disastrous, even though of course. it's not supposed to. <laughs> it shouldn't. Uh-uh. But it does matter in your experience, right? Like the you know, there's what air. There's you know how things are responded yes. to, and that it matters, and it, it hurts her chances at prevailing, whether or not it should. Right. Well, you're analyzing. You're analyzing everything um, about foreseeability in the lens of like. If I'm in those shoes, what would I believe? What's reasonable? And if you do that without her testimony, it becomes a very theoretical inquiry, right? And you have a much more range of possibilities of, yeah, I mean, I get what the prosecutor's saying, but still, an intentional murder, like, how could she have foreseen that? Then she gets up there and and reinforces this idea of just how irresponsible and narcissistic she is by, by testifying. Now you're assessing this differently as a juror that maybe... Maybe she she is so in her own self and so in about her own thing, her horses, her her affairs, her uh, being out and, and drinking, all these different things. Um, you know, maybe she was willfully blind to this and should have foreseen that this this was going to end up with someone getting hurt or maybe even her son. So so, yes, that can hurt the credibility of trying to spin it in a way that, you know, has reasonable doubt. What I was trying to communicate to the Detroit News and I stand by today again, reminding everyone that she still could win. What I was trying to say is this should be a very high level theoretical trial about when can a parent be held responsible for the intentional, egregious, uh, violent conduct of their child. That's what it should have been fought on. And that's a very theoretical question. Government says why she should be. You don't do anything as defense counsel. You argue that, yeah, that might all be true. But even if it's true, it's absurd to hold a parent responsible for an intentional homicide by someone else. And that's what it should have been. This should have been a showcase for the country on how our justice system works, how we do issues. Instead, it became a TikTok, Twitter, narcissistic uh, uh, show. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of disappointing as someone who really, like me, who loves the law and really was fascinated by this case. I think, you know, Karen McDonald and, and, uh, and Mr. Keese, the, uh, the assistant prosecutor and the elected prosecutor, did they do some things that I would have done differently? Yes. I think overall though, they tried to keep the, the tone and demeanor of this trial, uh, to have the dignity it should in, in the courtroom. And, uh, I just think all in all, what I'm trying to say is her getting up there and some of the things that were said and then arguments that were made from it, I think totally detract from what the real issue should have been in this case. Ben, can you jump ahead a couple couple segments there? I want to play the Jennifer Crumbly clip of the I wouldn't do anything different or whatever yeah. she said. I think that's relevant to what we're talking about now. Ben, if you can throw that up there for us. Do you believe there were things you were thinking at the time, I should do this, but I'm not doing it? Do you look back and think that? No, I don't. I mean, I of course I look back after this all happened, and um, I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. I don't get how even like even if you could like even if you argue, okay, I couldn't have seen it coming. You would still say if I had known what I know now, I would have taken him home that day and gotten him help. Like how the, do you say that? 
would have done a million things differently. I just didn't know at the time what he was going to do. I'm so disappointed in myself. I wish I could have predicted. I wish now I wish I would have done this. I would have gotten him help. I would have. Of course, I would have done things differently. It's such an easy I knock it out of the park. It's almost like that answer was prepared to be the opposite. Exactly what she said. I mean, she walked herself through it. Right. I thought about it. And no, I wouldn't have. I, I don't get I, how it's beyond me. It, well, really. I don't get how you feel that way, which is weird oh, enough. Well, of course. But how do you not have the common sense or perceptibility to even if you somehow bizarrely don't feel that way to at least lie about it. I mean, someone has to say it, Wade. Like how that had to have been rehearsed, right? Shannon was the one talking to her at that point. That was not on cross. Like what would that not have been rehearsed? Do you think that was how they planned that to go? There's no way. I mean, no one should ever, ever perjure themselves or not tell the truth. The answer is if you, really, uh, if you feel no, the answer is if you really felt that way, if that's the true answer. Don't testify. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. And I think that is exactly what I was saying. And what that's why, you know, in my in my other quotes of the Detroit News, I thought she was going to get up there and, and and deny these things, have the math paper in her hand and these other things. It's exactly what she did. I didn't think it'd be that bad where you would say I wouldn't do anything differently. That is if you're going to if you are leaning into testifying, you've made a decision that, you know what, I disagree with it. But I, I presume the decision is we got to humanize her. They have made this this evil villain like she is the person. She's the monster behind this. That's not true. She's a decent human trying her best in this world. Like I'm thinking that this is probably the calculus of of why you're testifying. Right. Let's humanize her. All right. So we're going to do that now. Let's prepare for the most honest testimony possible on that regard and make her sympathetic. Total opposite. I don't think anyone sympathizes with that answer. I can't imagine a reasonable human sympathizing. Even the folks who are, um, you know. Uh, gung-ho, not guilty, this is a ridiculous prosecution, which, you, again, I have a lot of people I respect who feel that way, and I don't necessarily think they're intellectually uh, dishonest in saying so. But even they can't look at that clip and say, wow, what a great mother. She's right. She didn't do anything wrong. She, <laughs> she, she was perfect. No one's, I don't see any reasonable human being is going to conclude that, and that just made it worse. Is there anything she said, either that clip or throughout her testimony, we agree that the perception is bad. We agree that it looks bad. It, it did not come off well. Is there anything she said at any point that made you think this is a reason to justifiably find her guilty rather than not guilty? As in, do I think her testimony like uh, proved an element or something like that? Proved or s helped support even. An I, I do. I think that answer is probably the you know clip of the trial, right, in terms of her inability uh, to, to act reasonably. And, and we're deciding what's a reasonably foreseeable. What is an object? When we say reasonable, the whole idea on the law is when you ever you hear a lawyer say uh, the word reasonable, it's an objective person standard. So we're just we're creating average person X Joe in this situation. Would he be reasonable to do X, Y or Z? So. Viewing her in that comment and some of her other comments, I think she is falling far below the average Joe standard of reasonableness and being grossly negligent. So I think she's reinforcing those things um, by by the commentary she's given and opening the door about the and we can talk about this, too. And I, again, I don't want to get ahead of you and your questions, but opening the door to things like her flight and her conversations with her lawyer and all of these things are are just grounds you don't want to be fighting on. So the short answer to your question is, Justin, yes, I think she hurt herself. Again, I still think this whole thing is not about gross negligence, only to the extent that did the gross negligence 
cause the deaths. And I don't think she necessarily hurt herself in that regard because she's saying she didn't, she couldn't foresee it. Now, arguing that theoretically to a jury without her testimony. So like the prosecutor just puts on its case and then the defense rests, doesn't put anything on. Then I can go up to the jury and argue theoretically why a reasonable person wouldn't foresee this. Now, having listened to her with all the other problems, it's a little, you're seeing, you might see her a little differently. And and that could hurt her in the sense that um, I don't buy it from, from this person. That, um, you know, when she says, no, I didn't look at that math paper and think he needed to go home. What? I mean, hearing that out of her mouth instead of honesty. Yeah, that could hurt her, right? That could hurt your your willingness to believe that. So tangentially, I guess I'm saying, is there anything like that was like, oh, smoking gun, gotcha? No, but there were some really bad moments. And I don't, you tell me, I mean, you, you're, you're, a, you're a lawyer, you graduated uh, law school. I mean, and you could just be a standard observer. I mean, did you see anything in that testimony that, gave you upside. I saw all downside. I saw no upside. Yeah, I did see some. Tell me. And I'll t- and believe me, I'm against putting her up there in the first place. Sure. I agree with you it was a disaster. There's one component since you asked. And um because I, you know, wasn't preparing this, I I don't have the exact quotes, but no, there but are tell. there are a couple points in the testimony and just going over the evidence where I do think her testimony offered some context to some of the back and forth were in a vacuum with, you know, void of context, certain text messages and exchanges were, they sounded worse than they were. And then, you know, they put her on the stand and Jennifer Crumbly's talking about some of their sense of humor. And yeah, you know, he, my husband joked about being electrocuted and, you know, my son joked about being in the back of a van getting taken off to Alabama when I asked him if he was okay. Like basically she added a lot of context to they had kind of a smart ass macabre sure. sense of humor legitimately like in their little threesome of the family there. I thought that did make some of the evidence seem not as smoking gun damning. Wow, these are heartless people like, OK, they were joking and they were clearly I th- I actually believe them because in context, like they are kind of going back and forth. And obviously it's hyperbole. Ethan wasn't actually in the back of a white van <laughs> on, you know. So that part where I was like, okay, some of the stuff that I thought was like, holy shit, was them just, they kind of had a dark sense of humor and that went both ways. So, but that short answer, yes, but relatively small and not worth all the downsides. But that's right. But that's totally reasonable. And that's what I was curious. I mean, I I guess now that you you point that out, I I, I can see that. And some of the uh, explanation as to the timing of things and the call, like, I, I hear you. I guess then, you know, the better way to say this rather than saying there was no upside is to say on balance, the tremendous downside oh, that we saw. I mean, it's, you know, it's the the uh, uh, seesaw on one side, you know. So. It was a bloodbath in that regard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just there's that's the thing. Like I could have coached her up and maybe not. Maybe she's incapable of being coached. But in theory, I could coach up a person to be more you know human up there, be sure. more sympathetic and uh and there's More. nothing wrong with that. I want to point this out to people because th- that gets this is a side. Don't let me go too far, but just as an aside, prosecutors like to say that in trials, by the way, this witness has been coached. You worked with the attorney on this. You've spoken to them several times. There's no coaching is is a term that's used to like your like your 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 manufacturing testimony or, or driving it in a certain way. There's nothing wrong with preparation. Me and you prepared for this show, right? We talked about a list of topics. You got all the media ready. So we always prepare witnesses. You are going to explain something to a to a jury you don't go in there cold so 
yes, you should prepare. And this notion that some that prosecutors like to throw around about being coached, I just want to take that word out of the um, uh, lexicon as being like a bad word or that lawyers somehow are, uh, you know, pushing them to testify a certain way. No, it's to be prepared. Know what you're going to be answering so you can answer it the way you, you know, intend to. And not slip up. Yeah. Just preparation. And, and not be missing. She should have been more prepared. And yeah. that's, that was my overall point. Well, yeah. And coach preparation, all that stuff. Yeah. There's, I, You're right. There's a connotation of dishonesty or pre- preparing to deceive. Right. That's not the case. Just like we prep for the show. I wasn't preparing to deceive my audience. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, you know, prepared. We have a way we want to present things and you want to do it a certain way. And that's one of the biggest arguments against putting her on the stand in the first place. And this is as a general matter, not just in this case. An innocent person who didn't do anything wrong can be on trial and accidentally say something that's true, but just answer it in a certain way and indict themselves when they didn't do anything. Right. I mean, is that fair? A hundred percent fair and 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 dead on, Justin. I mean, bullseye on innocent people um, for various reasons, you know a talented prosecutor, a cross-examiner framing something a certain way that, you know, doesn't really, um, you know, uh, bear resemblance to the truth in your mind. I mean, it's just, if you're not prepared for that or or have a, you know, um, uh, experience with it, you can be led down a path that you certainly didn't intend or even more common memories are faulty and that doesn't make you a liar. Uh, you know, I had a murder case where uh, a client, um, who claimed self-defense for the life of him could not remember, could the the there was an argument doesn't really matter what the point of it was but there was an argument from uh the prosecutor from their evidence that the the door to go in the house was was blocked by a body so you couldn't you had to like really push it open to get open and my guy's story was i was able to open that door and go right in before i left it was a self defense case he was talking about getting getting away from danger and no matter how many times i talked to this guy that is how he remembered it it was his truth somebody's wrong cuz either the the body was in the way of the door or it wasn't it doesn't make necessarily my personal liar. I believe him, in fact, and, and that's one of my capital cases that I reversed. Um, it was actually true in his mind, but sometimes memories are faulty. Maybe he did. Maybe he was in the heat of the moment and did have to kind of give it a little nudge and just doesn't remember. So the answer to your question is there are a lot of risks to testifying and not just that you're going to get caught in a lie, which, yeah, if you're lying, you're, you're going to get caught in a lie on good cross-exam. Um but memories are faulty. People are, don't do this. They don't like public speaking. They walk into traps that aren't really uh, necessarily indicative of truth. You've heard the what's the famous thing in like journalism school that a journalist can ask a politician, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? You can't answer that in a way that doesn't incriminate you, right? So if you're not prepared um, uh, and, and discuss this with your lawyer and really think about the risks and benefits, those kind of things can happen. Here's what surprised me. When it's announced, it's, it's released, whatever, that Jennifer Crumbly's taking the stand. I went exactly where I think you went and a lot of other people went, holy shit, mistake, holy shit, this is going to be a circus. And I think in a lot of ways it was. What I didn't see coming, and maybe you disagree, I did not foresee this becoming a circus, not because of her, but because of her counsel. And I would argue Shannon Smith somehow stole the show from this unprecedented defendant who, who's going to make history one way or another with the decision. And I, anybody, it, that was the, she was the star even before it was revealed she was going to take the stand. Once it was announced that she's going to be testifying, this is going to be a shit show because of her. It was actually more, I would argue, a shit show because of her attorney 
which I did not see coming, and it started from Jump Street with the opening statement, Ben, hit me with some Taylor Swift action. I can't believe this is the, the, not just part of the opening statement. This is the first sentence of the opening statement. This is how we began these proceedings. Ben, roll this embarrassing clip for me, please. On my way to court today, I blasted Taylor Swift to warm up my voice and calm my nerves. And there was a line in one of her songs that summarized what this case is about. Band-Aids don't stop bullet holes. And that's what this case is about. It's about the prosecution attempting to put a Band-Aid on problems that can't be fixed with a Band-Aid. We did not get 45 seconds into the proceedings. And this has already been trivialized into a Taylor Swift thing. It has been reduced to a terrible metaphor about bullet wounds and Band-Aids, which I, I can't imagine a less appropriate trial for that type of a statement. I, I, just a bizarre opening statement. If I'm a juror, I'm sitting there like, oh, shit, poor Jennifer Crumbly's behind the eight ball. I'm, I'm ready to turn in my guilty ticket right now. What did you make of that opening statement? I mean, that was just one excerpt of it, but that's a weird place to start, right? Yeah, I get it. Can I invoke the fifth? On you want to sit this on, one out? On one of my colleagues. I mean, listen, um, I would have taken different approach, a different approach uh, stylistically than Shannon Smith did in this trial in a lot of ways. Um, I do not think that was her best moment. I think that that kind of made some stomachs turn. Um, and I uh, think that that was a bad tone to set at the beginning. Um, and listen, she has a personality that she's, you know, honest, open and, likes to, you know, bring levity or self-deprecation to try to, you know, make serious matters more accessible. So like, I get what the point was. It was just so, um, you know, such a poor reading of the tone of the room, right. And the situation that, uh, I, I would have made a different choice. And, um, you know, I, I <laughs> being cautious about, uh, you know, impugning another defense lawyer because uh, we all work hard and, and I, this is a very challenging thing to do and under a lot of pressure, but it's certainly not, there was a lot of stylistic choices, Justin, that one being chief among them that uh, probably were a little beneath the dignity of the, of the trial. So who, who would you invoke in your opening statement? Would you <laughs> like, you're listening to ACDC, it wouldn't be Taylor Swift. That whole thing, you're nice and diplomatic. That was a disaster. And for all the you know, predictions about, her client being on the stand being a disaster, that to me was the beginning of a series of disasters from counsel where shockingly she stole the show and not in a good way. This isn't like, you know, Johnny Cochran, uh, you know, stealing the show like in a good way. You know, I guess that's arguable, but at least he was respected as this, you know, revered titan. Like he stole the show in a good way if you're the attorney. I, I can't believe she wiped her client off the front page. The first day, the first sentence of the first thing she said is, is she was already the story. Maybe I, maybe we're all playing checkers and she's playing chess. She created sympathy uh, by making this cringeworthy joke and taking the heat off for a little bit. Uh, giving her a little too much credit. Maybe, to me, maybe was, she's the genius. It was it's possible. It was too aimless to me throughout this whole process. <laughs> like I, there was no method to the madness. She didn't seem to have herself together. Ben, we'll skip ahead again. I don't know if you saw this part. It's, you know, obviously an ongoing long trial, many, many hours. 
But the tempers flaring over the sobbing, you know, there's a video played in evidence and there's, you know, Jennifer Crimley is, is crying and her attorney's crying. And there was a little bit of a, you know, hubble about that. Ben, roll that. This is an interesting exchange during the trial. To have not just the defendant, her lawyer sit there sobbing. So I, that I did not I, sob. I just, I just want to finish, Your Honor. I just want to finish. First of all, I was not sobbing. And this is horrific. This I've is never, horrific. I've never seen this before. It's okay. horrific. That's okay. why we asked the court not to play it. I. This is horrific. I don't know how the prosecutor okay, She's it. watched it a hundred times with these it. witnesses. It. It's horrific. You, you, we're doing our best. We were not sobbing or making a scene in any way. All my eye makeup's still on. I checked my camera. I'm not going to. I'm not having a I need to run to the bathroom. I need a break. Okay. Okay. We're having a break. That's what we're doing. And you got to keep your voices down. <laughs> okay. I know you're going to be diplomatic. Let me just ask, let me ask it this way. <laughs> Have you ever been party to an exchange like that in court? Like that and uh, plenty of emotional exchanges, but not where it's about, you know, me. Uh, <laughs> so you haven't you haven't I have not uh, said that you haven't demanded a bathroom break or anything I, like that. I have I have not done that yet. And maybe I'll have a, a bad day too. I'll take let me let me take a different angle on it again. I said at the outset of the show, and I think this fits in that I, I am disappointed that a trial with this kind of I, I love the law. And that's why, you know, I do what I do. And I was the nerd in law school, finished first in my class because I buried myself in lies. Just I love it. it. It clicked with me. Um, So a trial like this that's so unique, uh, I really wanted it to be, you know, dignified, um, you know, in a, in a court of law with the state of Michigan seal behind it for everybody to see, I wanted it to be a, a, a high learned um, exercise of our, of our justice system. And some of these things have, have taken the, you know, the, the highlights away from, from the legal arguments that are totally legitimate, but I do have a, a different angle on what was just said, what I find um, interesting. And I don't know if this was strategic or not. I can't say again, I am not, it's not like I'm talking to both parties about this case and getting inside baseball. This is just something I'm wondering. She said she never saw the video in that clip. How do you not see a gigantic piece of evidence that you asked to exclude until the day of trial? I don't understand that. I don't know. I assume that's true. And I don't know if that was strategic or what, but what if there's something in that video that is completely inadmissible or, you know, says something that, you know, you do, you wouldn't have otherwise known. He looks at the camera and shows a picture of his mom. I mean, I, I don't, just making something up. But like, how do you not see you got to you got to look. I mean, things happen. Uh, crazy things happen that you otherwise wouldn't know. I mean, I when I was first starting in the law in an OWI case, I saw a police officer tell uh, an OWI suspect to move her car down the road. Hard to say you thought she was drunk driving if you're asking her to drive more. I mean, like, I, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't see the video. Just a small example. H- how did she not see the video? That that struck me about that exchange. And we, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's true. And I, and I don't know if that is an intentional, par- you know, parachute for an appeal later or not. Or just, you know, a slip of the tongue. Or I, I, I don't know. But that struck me in that clip is, is something that I found strange. I mean, how do you not see a very important piece of evidence? I mean, she explained it wasn't in that clip because it was a rather long exchange that we cut down. But she did. Her explanation was she didn't see it on purpose because she viewed it as not relevant to her client's case. She viewed it effectively as, you know, relevant in Ethan Crumbly's case, but not, not necessarily Jennifer Crumbly. That was her mm-hmm. argument. That's just 
for context, that's what she said. And we can see how that's it's probably not the best practice, given that it's a key piece of evidence in your client's trial that's coming in. They think you need to see it before it comes in and what may or may not be in there. So, you know, listen, I, I think that that kind of stuff gets lost in the uh, emotional back and forth. I thought Prosecutor McDonald was was fairly uh, dignified in that. You know, to be fair, because I feel like I'm I'm pouring on Shannon Smith or we are we are and there's some that are merited the way this went. But I don't know that Prosecutor McDonald needed to bring that to the court's attention, some crying. Um, you know, that's what led to the exchange. And I don't know that that affected anything really. And that kind of just created a heated moment. Maybe not. Uh, that was a little petty. Uh, that to me wasn't the issue, though. I had no issue with the, and I, you know, I didn't see the full footage of them crying. I, you know, I saw a little bit of it. To me, that's not the issue. Like, okay, McDonald is saying I want it more buttoned up over there, and we were told not to do this or react emotionally, whatever. I'm not worried about that. I'm focused on the the reaction. Sure. To me, that's unbecoming of your chair that you're in. I mean, in the role as the attorney, don't you think that's a bad look to be? frazzled and you know we don't have to run it again but at one point she's got her arms crossed and she's she's all like kind of pissed off and it's yeah, not I a mean, good look it's it's very, first of all i probably should have said this at the outset and you probably know this but for your audience benefit the jury was not in the room during and, and many of these exchanges that you see you know on tiktok and twitter keep in mind that the vast majority of the time of these exchanges about evidence and especially these back and forth, the jury's not in the room. A lot of this will take outside. Yeah, that's so, fair. So that's, that's important to know, but to your direct point, and I'm far from perfect. There's very emotional situations in courtrooms. You lose your cool, lose your temper. Um, but in a case like this, it's in an, in, in a moment like that, in a topic like that, uh, you, you got to do your very best to 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 not put your client in a position where you're the you seem unhinged and you lose credibility with the judge or or whatever when it comes to the next argument. But Justin, I've had you know I've had plenty of moments that I want back. I mean, I I had a bond hearing where a prosecutor picked on uh, my client's parents who I thought were wonderful people. I got pretty heated and loud and and uh, it was passion, but I wish I would have reeled it in a little bit in that moment. So I don't want to just say that like you know those things can't happen. The repeated nature of it, some of the cringeworthy moments. I, I, I'm sure she wishes she could have some of them back. I mean, that's the issue. It's, it's. There's like 17 of these. I haven't even <laughs> seen them all, and I'm preparing a show on it. I can't. There's too many of them to get into all of them, frankly. And I like. Let's back up a little bit to the decision to put her client on the stand and the risks with that that we discussed. There's inherent risks associated with that. That fear, that risk sort of came true in a different way, not just with how she was perceived, but you mentioned it briefly in passing, a little slip up there that then opened up the entire book on their text messages between her and her counsel. I mean, that was, to me, the underrated part of this where, I mean, yeah, kind of spitballing a little bit on the timeline, but effectively she's in hiding with her husband, it seems like. They're in this Detroit studio thing that, with their, that their friend has. and she flubs on the stand and now has to open up for evidence her exchange with her attorney. I mean, is that not like a fair characterization of how that went down? Yeah. And, and it wasn't the only time that the door was open to probably evidence that uh, would not be preferable. I think that there's another portion and we can talk about this too, with the affair um, that 
I think defense counsel tried to own and say, you know what? Open the door. I think that might have been just like a little cleanup because I don't know that that was necessarily planned. But on the point that you make, you know, it's it's almost like a gilding the lily moment. You know, you know, you're dangerously close and to and to 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 allow that to happen and make it look even worse. I mean, there was no way to 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 put lipstick on that. Right. I mean, uh, when she texts her attorney, we've been found. What does the word found mean? I mean, you were hiding, right? Well, can, I, can, I, I, can we play that? And then I, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, sure. Let's sure, play sure. the clip and then yeah. I, not to interrupt you, yeah. but because we have the clip and then I want your reaction to it. Sure. So, Ben, let's we'll start with the video of Shannon Smith trying to protect the attorney client privilege that she uh, had been forfeited effectively by Jennifer Crumbly. Let's roll that. I had my client on the stand and I was asking her what her intentions were. I didn't I didn't plan for her to say my attorney told me to do this. That was the plan we had. That was what I was in touch with Miss McDonald about, but she wouldn't call me back. Okay, I, I, I don't know why you keep telling us that. Well, I'm just saying I didn't mean to open the door. So I would ask, I didn't mean for my client to open the door. I would ask the jury just be instructed that whatever was discussed with the attorney be struck from the record and move forward. Is Wait a minute. Struck from the record. What she already testified to? Yeah. That is not happening. Shannon, Shannon gets shut down. She she knows exactly where this is going to go. On cross, her client's going to be up there and they're going to hammer this. She just let's wipe it out. Let's get it off the table. It's ineligible for questioning. Judge wasn't having it. Sure enough, prosecution had some fun with this. Ben, let's roll the second clip in this. It's He just grills her on this matter. The next message you send was... Think we might have found, don't know, just heads up, please check. We might have been found, 11.16 p.m., laying low, 11.16 p.m. Response from Shannon, oh shit, Friday, December 3rd, 2021, 11.16 p.m. Oh shit. Okay, there's a lot, there's a lot there. First of all, is that not vindication for why you don't put somebody on the stand unless you have to? I, I don't. Yeah, I'll let you toot my horn for me. They, I mean, this is this is precisely what I was concerned about when I used the word disaster in the Detroit News. And again, today, these are the kind of things without the most cautious, careful preparation and a very sophisticated client. These are the things that can happen. And this is so bad and so embarrassing um, that it, it, it just it, it honestly, it, I can't describe the churning in my stomach when I watch it because it's every lawyer's nightmare. Um, that exchange you just heard, I can talk about surrendering a client, how common that is and, and put it in context. But let me just say that that exchange that you just heard is so extraordinary because it is very clear that they are hiding when you, with the word choices there, we have been found right laying low, they are hiding. Regardless of whether you intend to surrender the next day, going to this building and hiding and, and the other things that were surrounding it allegedly about their flight does not sanitize the, the concept that you were in hiding that night. A lot of times, you know, attorneys, just for context, and I just did this last week in a murder case up in Saginaw, okay? This, there was a guy uh, who hired me, and apparently he had been evading law enforcement for weeks. What's my first phone call? He's going to turn himself in. I'm, where do you want him to go? What time? And what did I say? I'm not going to represent you if you're not there at that time. And sure enough, my client was at the jail at 9 a.m. like I told him to be. 
They were not. And instead of, you know, being the impartial, dignified lawyer and saying that, I don't, I, you know, I don't, they didn't follow my instructions. I'm very sorry. You know, it's embarrassing for a lawyer because now your credibility is hurt. Instead of doing that, I, there was text messages. I remember when this was going on, you know, Miss Smith was texting the detective and saying, oh, you know, I'm moving out of my house. I'm trying to get a hold of dad. When really, I mean, it's pretty clear she knew what was going on. And that's really a bad look. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's painful for me to say it uh, about another lawyer, but someone who deals with this every day and needs the, you, you, a defense lawyer to be effective for their, um, for their client, innocent, guilty, what have you. You need to have the trust and respect of prosecutors, law enforcement for this all to work. Otherwise, this becomes a much more difficult system, and a lot of the problems that we talk about in the justice system rear their heads, you know, um, innocent clients and bail and wrongful convictions and all those things. So this is really, it's disappointing, and it's just so, it's, it's beyond cringeworthy that it then came out in front of the jury. But, you know, you kind of reap what you sow. The door didn't need to be open. That never needed to come out. It would have been protected. You know protected. what? Thank you, for, thank you for putting that, too, so I can finish. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's, that's the important thing. Again, gilding the lily. You didn't need to ask the question. This all could have been made at argument. They were scared. That's a reasonable interpretation of why they were found where they were found. You know, you can't conclude they weren't going to turn themselves in. They were freaking out. All this press is at their house. That's also a reasonable story for why they slept there. Instead, you gave the truth. They were running. They were hiding. Right. They didn't show up when they were supposed to in Novi that day. And it becomes this petty thing, you know, Shannon Smith versus Karen McDonald and texting. And that's it's, it's so undignified. So you're that was a great point, Justin, that you did. It's such a self-inflicted wound that never needed to happen because without her testimony, you could have made that theoretical argument already that they were scared. Could have made the same argument and their communications would have been protected inherently. Correct. But when you Correct. blow the door open, I mean, she tried Shannon. Shannon knew it was a problem. And she so, tried to get out of that. And so people understand when we when we say the phrase open the door, that means that when something that otherwise wouldn't be admissible, right? This is attorney client privilege. You obviously everybody knows this. When you talk to a lawyer in consultation with a lawyer for further legal advice, that's protected. No one can invade what's called the privilege. No one can the lawyer can't tell anyone and the the law can't make you. However, opening the door means that you somehow bring it into play. You can't. Uh, so Shannon was asking questions about whether they were, you know, on the run or hiding or why they were doing what they're doing. And you can't let someone lie. If you open the door to something that's then contrary in the privilege, you've now allowed the prosecutor to, to go through that door and invade privilege to show. No, that's not consistent with what you said to, yeah, your to impeach. Your so, you, so you're opening the door by um, essentially asking a question that may be contrary to what is protected. You can't have a a sword and a shield. You can't say this is what happened with the sword and then shield yourself with the privilege that shows the opposite. So, so that's, I just want people to understand when we say opening the door, that's kind of the idea. Is, is there anything problematic from the counsel's standpoint there where even if it's not aiding and abetting or an accomplice, like you had knowledge that they were in hiding and you, you concealed that. I mean, is there any issue with her, even if not legally, maybe professionally, license-wise? Or is there No, I think she should have handled it better, but I'm not, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, look, these those are very difficult situations, and it has a lot to do with trust because nothing I say or do to a police officer, a prosecutor, whatever, can stop them from arresting the person if they want to. It's all built on trust. 
should she have handled it differently? Should she have been in? And I don't really know the details of her conversations after they didn't report the first time. So I, I I'll reserve further comment beyond what I just said before. But um, I don't think that like rises to the level of any ethics problem. But you, you got to be careful. Like it gives it. I just told you the example of, of me having to do this last week. It gives me a lot of anxiety because I want I want to make sure I'm honest. I don't want to put myself in, you know, in jeopardy of misleading anyone. So that's why I'm, I said, hey, this is the instructions I gave him. I said he's going to report to the jail at this time unarmed. And that's the instructions I gave. Very clear. And then, you know, you've been honest and, and hopefully it works. And, and for me, it's always tended to, to go as as planned, knock on wood. Um, but should she have handled it better? Yes. Do I think she did anything unethical? I don't. I don't have enough information to say that. I mean, let's put that aside. If I'm the juror, don't I interpret this now as clear evidence of cognizance of guilt? Because if you leave her off the stand, as you mentioned, and I'm making this scared argument, scared people aren't necessarily having cognizance of guilt. They're just scared and they're trying to get away. But the wording and been found, as you mentioned, found hiding clearly and your attorney saying oh laying shit low. laying low these are things associated with criminal behavior typically like why are you doing these things otherwise like to me that's problematic not just from an optic standpoint or oh what a bad moment or whatever it actually hurts her ability to be acquitted in this right so there is a jury instruction now when when i say this because i think we'll talk about it again as we uh, towards the end but at the end of a criminal case, after all the evidence has been put in, all the testimony, the closing arguments that we've been talking about, the judge speaks to the jury for about 45 minutes to an hour. And the judge will literally read what's the law to them. We call it jury instructions. You are to pick a foreman. You are to have this. You are to do this. This is how you do, you know, you analyze evidence. Here's what evidence is. And it's literally explaining the law to them. One of those instructions is a, called a flight instruction. And this is a big uh, back and forth in the defense community on whether we like the flight instruction or we don't. Because the flight instruction, you can request it, you can fight it, you can go either way. But it, it says both of what you just said. The flight instruction says that you can consider flight, post-crime flight, as evidence of consciousness of guilt. So you're, the jury is told you can consider that as being evidence that they felt that they were guilty. But the rest of the instruction also says... But not, it's not necessarily conclusive because people flee for a lot of reasons, fear, danger, et cetera. So it lays out both reasons in the flight instruction. Some lawyers don't like it because it says you can use it. I kind of like it because it gives the other re alternatives for why you might be. So all that said, all my theoretical stuff to say this, if she doesn't testify, what can you do? You argue on the instruction that there's a lot of reasons people flee and they haven't really proven that that's what they were doing. They're surrounded by media. Their kid just killed a bunch of people. Everything that Shannon said otherwise about there being cameras in the building and that was occupied, they weren't high. You can say all that and make the argument as is. Now, with those text messages, pretty hard to say that they weren't hiding, right? Pretty hard to say with a straight face that there wasn't some feeling of guilt or that they needed to be elsewhere. Um, so long story short to, to your initial question, I think that this really is another self-inflicted wound that didn't need to happen, but for the decision to let her testify. Who makes a decision on that, whether it's included in the jury instruction or not? So jury instructions, what the judge will tell parties before a trial ends, they, you know, judges do it different ways. But generally speaking, 
They want the prosecutor and defense lawyer to get together and submit a bunch of instructions that they agree on. These are the ones that should be given. And those are all usually obvious. Obvious. What is evidence? You know, what is the crime that's being charged here? What are you allowed to talk about? Don't watch the press. You know, things that are just not argued. And then you have what's called disputed instructions. So one side will ask for an instruction. And if the other side doesn't want it, they'll say why it's not appropriate and vice versa. So you'll give alternate or you could argue for alternative instructions. So, for example, the causation instruction here, I'm sure they debated how it's going to read, what language it's going to use, reasonable foreseeability, what has to be proven. But in a flight instruction, I think most times that I've ever encountered it, the parties have agreed. But essentially, if they don't, you just you you argue it. Right. So if the defense lawyer wants it, you say this is a standard jury instruction judge. I'm entitled to it. They've made flight an issue and it probably comes in. But if flight wasn't an issue really or wasn't made, then maybe there's a reason not to. I'm giving you a lot of explanation for the short answer that either the parties agree or they argue about it and the judge decides which instruction. Do we don't know if that's a part of the instruction for this yet. You know, I don't. It's, it's a good, yeah. I, I presume it will be because it's been put in issue. I don't see how you can avoid it. Um, so I presume it will be. But um, that's one to listen for on Monday. Uh, I presume that that'll be televised when she gives jury instructions. Some people tune out and get bored by jury instructions. But as a lawyer who does a lot of appeals and someone who reverses conviction, that is fertile ground for error in trials, misreading an instruction, accepting an instruction that's imprecise, because th those are like the holy grail of what a jury follows in a case. The you know, I talk to juries after verdicts, guilty, not ver not guilty. They take their role very seriously and they kind of use they'll get instruction booklets from a lot of judges with what with what was read to them. They use that as their Bible because they they're not trained. They're not lawyers. They, they have to have something to guide their discussions. Those are very, very important. And I think sometimes get overlooked by lawyers um, in asking for ones that they want, because you're you can ask anything that's legal. You can ask for the jury to be told like, you know, Shannon Smith could ask for what's called a special instruction on uh, reasonable foreseeability and explain it further to the jury beyond what she's ordinarily explained. So listen to what the jury's instructed on the law. Pretend you're a juror if you're interested in this trial and listen to what the law is, because that's precisely what the foreman of the jury is going to go through and say, OK, here's element one. This is obvious, right? She's that person right there. Here's element two. And that's exactly how this discussion is going to go. The closing statement, I was fascinated to see where it would go. I think the prosecution's closing statements were pretty much what was expected. You're kind of going through the evidence and why you think it's compelling. The defense, I didn't know where Shannon Smith was going to go with this, and she stayed in Bizarro Town as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Yeah, she, I couldn't even get through it. The amount of time she's invoking herself, talking about her, her life, her kids, it was incredible. It wasn't a simple anecdote or two. The theme of the speech was basically her. We cut up a little bit of this, Ben, play just this one minute of a bizarre closing statement in my estimation from Shannon Smith. All of the people who think they know everything behind keyboards at home commenting about what they think the evidence in this case has shown. I'm human. I am a human being. I say I'm sorry a lot. Evidently, there's a TikTok channel of me saying I'm sorry through this whole trial. On most days, I'm lucky if I'm fit for human contact. I'm lucky if I've taken a true shower and didn't just grab a handful of wipes and scrub off the best I can on my way running out the door, putting on my makeup as I drive to court in my car. I'm so thankful that the rest of the world sent me emails that I don't know how to pronounce cachet because now I do.
You may have concluded that you don't like me, that you hate me. That's fine. And if you're one of the people who plans to make a TikTok about me, that you won't hold those opinions against Jennifer Crumbly. So, I mean, this the closing statement is effectively Shannon Smith answers the haters. I mean, that's that's <laughs> what that was. I, I mean, it's a whole thing. I You should have seen all the stuff I cut to make it not four minutes long. And I only got halfway through it. I mean, that was a bizarre multiple shots at the public perception. She's taking jabs at people for her not knowing the pronunciation of words and doing TikToks. It was a, a bizarre, ill-fitting presentation, in my opinion. What say you? I agree. I, I, I uh, again will return to I would have made different stylistic decisions. I think some of the content of the closing argument um, was accurate about um, the, the, the significant legal questions. But the way in presenting that, it just it is so hard to get beyond the the me part of that um, closing argument. I understand personalizing something. Uh, I think there can be value in that. But generally, I think the the better approach is to do that from the from a juror's perspective. Think about, you, you know, many of you are parents. Think about some of the things that you say or whatever. And maybe one of those examples. But these 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 bizarre examples about um my kids don't want to spend time with me and I don't want to spend time with them. I'm not sure that that's hitting the notes that you think they're hitting. Right. I think that's kind of the opposite because that is not at all how I feel as a parent. I love spending time with my kids and I think my kids love spending time with me. Maybe because they're teenagers, she's trying to make a joke like that. It just wasn't hitting right. Those, those examples. And I call my daughter a psycho all the time and text like I get, again, I get the point that you're making. You take anything out of context about the jokes you make to your wife, your spouse, your husband, whatever point taken. But there's a way to personalize that in a way for like a reasonable person to just say, think about your own life rather than making everything about the lawyer. And that kind of goes along with this, um, you know, this is uh, my get back kind of uh, speech at uh, everyone. And, and frankly, some of that, and I guess uh, probably Karen McDonald made a just choice. I can't object to everything because I'll be up for the next 20 minutes objecting. But some of those arguments were so inappropriate. There's something called a public policy argument or a, um, you know, a commentary on the wide reaching effects of a case that is completely inappropriate in a closing argument. I mean, you watch anybody's watch Boston Legal or any legal show. You, you remember Alan Shore giving big sweeping closing arguments about guns in America or all the issues of the day. That's not reality. In reality, closing arguments have to be very narrowly tailored to the facts of a case and the charges in a case. So these big grand sweeping, grand sweeping statements about um, the implications of the case, the first of this kind, the media were so inappropriate. They went without objection, I think, strategically by Karen McDonald again, because I don't you can't just keep objecting. Um, but I, I just don't I the, the points that needed to be made were sp spread throughout that closing argument. But I think the examples and the way that they were dressed up, they, they didn't hit for me. And I think Karen McDonald's rebuttal was just, you know, a, 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 an absolute punch in the chin after after that, after um, defense counsel's closing argument. So uh, I, I take your point. I think stylistically, it just did not work for me. I, I agree with you all. That's about as uh, as tough as I can be. I, but there's a difference between poor strategy. You mentioned the example earlier about the sexting and I give my son a cell phone. What if he commits a sex crime? Bar? Right. I, like, okay, tone deaf, not a great example. Not really apples to apples, all those issues. But at least I can understand sure. 
like where she's trying to go. I, I can see how she's trying to represent her client and perhaps doing it in a clunky way. Talk like taking shots at the TikTok people. <laughs> how is Jennifer Crumbly even theoretically helped by her saying, oh, I know you guys had a laugh at my expense, not knowing how to pronounce cachet. Like, what, what, how is her client, that's not even like a misguided attempt to do right by your client. That's just petty bickering. When I heard her say it, I was actually watching it with a lawyer friend of mine named David Sanawi, who, by the way, great business lawyer, everybody, David Sanawi. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll pay for the spot. Um, no, but I, and I said to him and we were watching it together and I said to him, she's about to say that we're all imperfect. And, 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 and literally like three seconds later, she pointed it, but don't hold it against my client. We're all imperfect talking about herself. So I think that was like the theme of what she was doing it, but there was so much me, me, me in that, that I think that message kind of gets lost. And, and, um, you know, I, as, as a defense lawyer, I try to keep in mind, this is about my client, their story, their life. And I do think there is, don't get me wrong, tremendous value in humanizing things and personalizing it because you're asking a juror to be just as a member of the community to pass judgment on someone else beyond a reasonable doubt. They have to call on their experiences. That's why we have juries. We have juries. We don't have professional juries or judges like in South Africa, professional judges that make these decisions. We have regular people who are relying on their regular lives to pass judgment. So there is value in saying, think about your parenting. Think about stupid things you've done or said. You couldn't possibly have thought this or that. So there's value. But the way she went about it, instead of making them think about their own lives, were these like cringeworthy anecdotes about hers that I don't even think made sense or weren't particularly sympathetic. The examples I gave about like, you know, not wanting to spend time with her teenage children or, and, and her oopsie baby and um, which I think was a direct retort to something the prosecutor had said. But nevertheless, I, I think a lot got lost. Again, I'm going to say what I said at the very top of the show, though. Despite all of that, it, they can still win this case because it's, it's still a, a very unique challenge for the prosecutor. But it will be in spite not because of all of these things we talked about. So obviously nuances of the law should and will, in theory, drive the day. The law is the law. Did she you know, fit the crime or not? But as a general, just, you know, she, Shannon used the, the term vibe sort of awkwardly in the trial. The vibes, uh, she wasn't getting the vibe that this person was allowed to testify or whatever it was. The vibe here that you're going for. So you're the defense attorney. You're representing Jennifer Crumbly. You're going for, I would think, I, I just, I'm horrified that this happened. I'm beside myself. I'm kicking myself every day that I didn't see this coming, but I couldn't. And like your, your vibe is going to be remorse and shame to a certain degree. You're horrified. You feel bad. They seem to strike more of a, they're mad that they're even here. Like, what, like, what are you guys, what am I even doing here? This is stupid. Right. I mean, is that a fair? Yeah, I, I almost feel like it's like an elementary belief that we're fighters. We're going to fight back like this is, you know, um, this has been an unfair treatment for years and it's our turn now to take, you know, and I don't agree with that strategy. I just don't. I would do precisely what you just said. My vibe for uh, for this would be I'd want to build up the importance that the jury feels about their role. I do that in a lot of trials, but this one really needs it. How? You know, I would play up the legal nerd stuff about why we have juries, what reasonable doubt came from and why their role here is so important because of the uniqueness of this case and because of its potential ramifications. So 
my my role would be to I would try to elevate it, try to be polished and dignified and the humanity part of it, like you said, own it. That honesty about owning bad decisions and wanting to be better and just and and, and saying that she's imperfect, that honesty would go a long way to selling the idea that we can't hold her responsible for for uh, the murder committed by her son. I mean, that's such a stretch. Um, I think that hits home when you're honest about the other stuff, that even with these mistakes that she wishes she could take back. You know, like, like for example, she did say that, that one thing in her testimony that I wish it was us. You know, I wish she killed us, not them. That kind of, you know, that, that could have been powerful if said in the context of, you know, other accountability and honesty and less narcissism, right? Um, so the, to answer your question, you know, in, in summary, I would have wanted to elevate this and make the jury feel really important, make them understand why there's such gravity. Um, because I, f- I find that when you put, you know, weighty decisions about other people's lives on jurors, they tend to take these things very hard and very seriously when I talk to them after. I'm always really impressed. People from all backgrounds, like you'll have like a casino pit boss and like a, an accountant, you know, in a room together. And you see how seriously these people took it and how, how heavy it weighed on them. This is the kind of case that needs that. And I think by taking all of these, uh, you know, turns and, and emotional heel turns and fighting on grounds you didn't need to fight on and some of the self-inflicted wounds, it takes away from that. And it may, it almost makes the jury just more inclined to be, to be angry about the, the whole thing um, and, and it makes it more of an uphill battle than it should have been for your defense. I think they had a much stronger case without her going up there. I, I, I think she hurt herself. I, I think she hurt I her chances. I, who knows what happens? We don't know. Speculate a little bit though. I mean, you, you famously just won 500 K you, <laughs> you like to dabble in some legal gambling. Let's, let's dabble in some Depends, friendly. What's the line? I need to know. The oh, line. I'm asking you to handicap it. You, that's exactly what I'm asking. I, like, where, where does this go? We're like, we're going to find out pretty soon, I guess. I mean, I, there's no time limit, but I typically what, this isn't going to drag on for weeks and weeks, right? Yeah. So they're going to be instructed Monday and they're going to have a full day to deliberate. I, I mean, I this isn't an overly complicated or lengthy case. It, if the longer it goes, the more of a chance of a hung jury, you know, that they're, they're talking about something. But, um, you know, in a case like this, I think a quick verdict, a quick verdict is probably not guilty because I don't think that 12 people can come together that quickly on such a unique concept to convict someone immediately. May, I mean, maybe. I mean, I've been, trust me, I've been wrong plenty of times trying to read tea leaves from a jury. Just giving you a gut feeling. I think a quick verdict is probably better for the defense. A, the longer things go, also good for the defense because it means there's something that someone or some ones are in there talking in their favor. Otherwise, they would have been back, right? So the longer it goes, the more of a chance you're getting towards a hung jury. You know, the sweet spot is if they spend some time, three, four, five, six hours the day and they come back and then it's going to be real interesting if they have a, a unanimous verdict. So you asked me about betting. I've been getting a lot of questions lately since I since my big win in the survivor pool about betting. You're always looking for value, right? If I was a betting man, I bet you the value on this would be on uh, uh, two or three to one to get a mistrial or something like that, because uh, one juror. One juror who doesn't agree or holds out can hang a jury. That means they're not unanimous. To convict someone or to acquit them, it has to be 12-0, period. It has to be unanimous. 
If it's 11 to one and they can't break that gridlock and the judge will keep telling them, go back there, keep talking it out, you know, but if you, they, they there's, there's a, we call it a, um, oh, I said Allen charter. We call it, there's an instruction basically that the, the judge gives to the jury, like, don't compromise your principles. If you really believe it, then hang tough, but listen to other people, be willing and open and see if you can be convinced. You send them back and, and see if they come back. If they're hopelessly divided, which is basically the standard, then it becomes a hung jury and it's called a mistrial. When that happens, the person's not convicted or acquitted and the prosecutor then has to make a decision of whether to try them again. I, I think that's a, that's a real possibility. I feel like it's going to be hard to get 12 people to agree on this topic. Just look at the conversation more broadly. Um, if I had to pick non-mistrial, I, I, I just think that she is she was so bad and and this was just so far down the road or down on the other end of the spectrum of uh egregious parenting that i would i would lean towards guilt uh but my official bet i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to go for the value play i'm a long shot guy i'm going to go for the mistrial and that that would be though know, that would be the better the right three. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, but I, I could see it happening what what do you think and again this is speculation I, what's McDonald, Prosecutor McDonald's appetite to pursue a second trial, in your opinion, because I, from just, I've no, I've never talked to her, never met her, but just from what I can see, she's kind of maybe not staked her reputation on it, but has really put her foot in the ground on this topic and has stood strong. It feels like she would not so readily take that loss, right? There's, you know, and I don't necessarily think it would be a loss because you've had, you would, if you have a hung jury, you have some people who voted to convict. Yeah, um, if she's walking free. That's a loss. That, that's true. Well, sh that's true. The public will perceive that as you, a loss. There's a lot of considerations that have to be made on whether to retry something, right? The significance of the case, and this one's obviously very significant. The, the, the victims and their considerations, expense. Um, but another thing that has to be considered here is because they've had no bond, uh, you know, because they, uh, the judge, several judges now have believed they were fleeing, not uh, just scared. Um, they have served a considerable amount of time and involuntary manslaughter is not going to carry with it, you know, a lengthy, humongous prison sentence. I don't know what their guidelines are be. I haven't calculated them, but a part of this consideration, I suppose if that happens, will have to be, they have, they've served, you know, a considerable amount of time already. Um, and, and whether or not on balance, do we pursue it with the expense and do the families want to go through it again? Maybe they do. And, and that'll certainly weigh on. Karen McDonald's decision is their appetite for it. So I don't have a good answer for you, but those are the factors that 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 I would imagine she'd consider. In a case like this, if if I was if I was advising, if I was an outside consultant, I'd I'd have everybody take a breath, you know, for a week and be more dispassionate and then make a decision on a retrial. Some prosecutors, you know, they come right out and say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be retrying this. Yeah, we'll be back. Right? See you tomorrow. Right, Got, right, yeah. right. So so. Uh, so we'll see, but I, 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 this is such a hard one to handicap. I, I gotta say, not again to toot my own horn. I'm pretty darn good at handicapping guilty, not guilty. When I watch these trials, like when we're in the, the cases that are in the news, I've been pretty, pretty darn good, if not perfect. I'm having a real hard time handicapping this. That's why I'm going mistrial because I could really see. I really have a hard time seeing twelve people agreeing one way or another. I, I, I would yeah. be in the vote of guilt. I, based on everything that I saw at trial and trying to be a juror. But I could easily sympathize and and I wouldn't um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, I wouldn't criticize someone for, for having a different view. I think there, there is a reasonable argument to be made why she shouldn't be guilty of a, of a homicidal offense. Yeah. The second component of the crime, you know, it's the necessary result, right? That's, you know, you can be perceived as defending the activity and the behavior and the conduct, whatever, but it, it really is. That was tough. And we talked about that two years ago. It's tough to get there, but her testimony was so bad. I think, I think she kind of took herself into it. She made herself seem fulfilling of that second element. That's my takeaway. My bet is guilty, but I, I would be shocked if it's an we acquittal. We were both really skeptical when we did our first show, I feel like, about... Healthy. Like, like we were. We both said, okay, bad parent, clearly, but yep. this seems like a real stretch. And I think both of us have watched this trial and, and feel a little differently. I, I, I do, and I'm a defense lawyer. I... You know, I know how I would have argued this case, and I think it was winnable, with, and it still might be um, for, for legal reasons, but man. Isn't there, see, the problem with the hung jury here, and I think a consideration when Wayne, do we pursue charges again on a second trial? I'm totally speculating. This, I, mean, could no, be, I know you yeah, are. Yeah, I know okay, you are. Yeah. I mean, we, we both are. Yeah. Obviously, we don't know. Right. No one knows. Right. The jury doesn't even know where this is going to be. <laughs> right. um, but this case in particular has... I would argue heavier consideration because of the symbolic nature of it. It's historical. Can a parent be held liable? Yes or no. So to leave that unanswered with a tie game, everyone go home and kiss your sister result, (laughs) just from a society intrigue and legal standpoint and culture standpoint, kind of deflating. I mean, whatever side you land, it's like we kind of want an answer one way or another. This is not, this is an unprecedented landmark case potentially. We we don't want to tie, right? I mean, from from a totally legal common law standpoint, informing other prosecutors across the country. I mean, yeah, this the if this comes out with a definitive result one way or another, that's absolutely going to inform future future prosecutions one way or the other. Mistrial kind of leaves us in uh, can't take anything in, from it in purgatory. I mean, you can take something from it that it's challenging because on the on the spectrum of cases. Again, why I don't share the while I respect the concerns of the defense bar and others who feel this is a slippery slope, respect it, reasonable position to have. I'm not saying it's not. But why I don't share those concerns is I see this as so far down the road of bad that I'm not worried about like the ordinary bad parenting like. Oh, Lily just fell in her bedroom and I got to run up there. Is she okay? Like just things that happen. You know, it's a bad example, but this is just so far down the line of egregious omissions and conduct that I'm not worried about the slippery slope. This is so unique and so outrageous to have bought the gun days before to have left it the way they did with a kid who's seeing ghosts and a kid that writes on a piece of paper, blood everywhere. Help me. Right. Like, so I don't share those concerns necessarily, but I think. Any way you look at any result that we've just talked about, it's like a soccer game, win, loss, draw, right? Any of those results is going to inform other prosecutors. A tie or a, a mistrial, whatever, maybe the vote will help if it's 11 to 1 or 6 to 6. That tells you something too, though, Justin. It tells you that even in a case where the facts were about as good as they're going to get, short of the handing the gun outside the school, right, um, it still couldn't get a conviction. That would inform. Yeah, it would inform yeah. this. Yeah. But again, that's just one jury. What if it was 11 to one? You know, it's well, like, that, that's, that guy is a weirdo. Right. And, you know, that happens. Maybe in Montana, I can I can. Get There's that people conviction. who hold out on cases that are just cut and dry. <laughs> yeah. For reasons you'll never know. Right. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, I mean, there's a little element of jury nullification there. This one, it is, happens. It's it's a fascinating case. I do hope for. I mean, I'm sort of rooting for guilty because I don't. I haven't seen any remorse, and I think it should be there. I think it's probably the just outcome. But hung jury to me is the worst outcome. Like I just, I think we need some type of an answer here. I this is back and way up, and this, this will be kind of the last thing. But did you have any issue? Because this was the big kind of pushback on the other side with. Karen McDonald bringing up the affair with the firefighter that you're just trying to make her seem like a bad person. Do you think that was a sort of foul play? Uh, not foul play, like kind of out of bounds, I should say. Well, my, you know, my understanding is it wasn't coming in uh, until Shannon Smith pursue, pursued the line of questioning about his motivations for telling a different story. So sh- the suggestion made by by defense counsel was the reason that he was giving different statements uh, and a different story was because he was being pressured by police. Well, now you've entered a motivation to lie um, into the equation on why this witness might be making something else up. So now it's only fair to present why, another alternative for why he might have told a different story, and that's because he didn't want to reveal the affair. So I don't think the way it came in was unfair. Does that make sense? Yep. I think pursuing it initially, I would have. I think I agree with judge's decision to keep it out. But once you open the door, once again, you've you've now gilded the lily, trying to have a shield. I'm looking at the Spartan shield and a sword. You're trying to create a motivation to lie, but you want to shield yourself from what might be the truth. And that's he probably would, didn't want the affair revealed, right? So I, I don't think it's necessarily relevant. I see the argument. I there's there's um. There's merit to the idea of her focus was not on Ethan. Her focus was on her, right? Her going out, affairs, horses, what she wanted to do. So I see that, but that it's getting a little far astray. We call those like collateral issues to a trial. And the the question really is if if you ever anybody wants to, you know, you always hear irrelevant or that's relevant or that's the test for relevance really comes down to to this. A lot of stuff's going to be relevant because the test for relevance is, does it make something more or less probable? And anything can move the needle a little bit. But the real question you should ask yourself if, as, a, as a watcher of trials is, is its probative nature, like what it, its relevance, is that, how does that compare to the prejudice, like the unfair prejudice that comes from it? Like, obviously, it's not relevant that she cheated on her husband to determine whether or not she could have foreseen these murders. That's not relevant. That's just making her sound like a bad person. She's a cheater or whatever. Does that unfair prejudice outweigh the relevance that, that Ms. Uh, Prosecutor McDonald says is relevant, which is um, she wasn't focused on her son because she was focused on her affairs. I would say the prejudice weighs a little too far in the you're inflaming the jury for unrelevant reasons more so than probative. Is that, is that yes, too? Yes, I'm with you. Is that okay? Now let's say you didn't, make a huge conflict for yourself and say on record that you would vote to convict mistrial happens. Jennifer Crumbly calls you. Would you, would you, <laughs> nah, I can't now. I no, don't think I said, let's say yeah. you didn't. Oh, yeah, oh okay. Yeah. yeah. No, obviously uh, yeah, you I, can't I, now. I lost a lot of credibility, but let's say you didn't have this record now. So my, my, my father, may he rest in peace. Um, the Titan that is Neil Fink always got the question that any criminal defense lawyer gets. And that's, would you represent that person knowing they were guilty or could you represent this person for X, Y, and Z? And his answer is, is my answer and is the reason that I'm a criminal defense attorney. And it's, I will represent virtually anyone. And there's some exceptions just for reasons that are unrelated to this, to my general um, 
principle because I don't view necessarily, of course I care about my clients, but what my passion and purpose in being a criminal defense lawyer is, you are not defending just that individual. You are defending the system from wrongful convictions. So if I get the most guilty person on earth, I mean, you commit a crime on video, right? And I'm defending you. It's not that I'm defending Justin as innocent or trying to get him off on a technicality. If I can protect the most guilty, obviously guilty person and give him every right he has, motions to suppress based on the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment violations, if we protect that person, then the system's going to be intact for the actually innocent person. If you start saying, ah, he's guilty, we don't need to file these motions, he doesn't, we don't need a, a good lawyer for him, he did it on video, then you start eroding these things to allow for us to, as a society, start accepting some erosion of due process rights. So I very much believe that the most guilty of us needs the most protection, and I'm totally fine with a guilty person going free on a technicality, because I know that I have protected the system for the actually innocent person, which there are thousands of innocent people in prisons just statistically right now. So hopefully that makes sense to people. What I'm trying to communicate is it's less about the the person that's actually being defended and more about if it was you or you actually were wrongfully accused, which there are many who have since been exonerated and to be exonerated. We got to make sure that we protect the uh, each person individually so the system's intact. Yeah, I mean, well said. You said it to me in a similar vein. You said if the system, if I can protect the system for the worst, the worst, I know everyone else will be okay. Well, at least we can strive to do that. There are going to be just the, there's no perfect system. So no, but that's are, the principle. Yeah, but yes, yes. Yeah. If you start eroding that, if you start saying he's on video, wait, we talk, actually we talked about this with Ethan Crumbly. Remember, we were analyzing mitigation and whatnot. He's on video. It's obvious. And I and you said, why are you using the word alleged? Wait, are you at you wanted me to explain it to the audience? You knew why I was. And the reason it's good practice, because even the most guilty, if we understand their rights, we protect their rights, then God forbid we get in a situation where the police screw up or there's a nefarious purpose and you have the wrong person. We have a means to protect them. And we got the best system in the world. Let's protect it. Well said. I'd love to have you back in off the curb for maybe for like a 20 minute verdict reaction. Yeah. I'm in. I'm yeah. In. Especially if you if you're hung jury. I mean, you're kind of hot right now. I don't know. People might want to tail your I tweeted hung at, jury prediction. I tweeted at Circus Sportsbook today. I said, I need a line. Get me a I line. I saw that. I said, yeah. get me a line for, for hung jury. No, I uh, I just, I, th- I think that uh, that would be the most... Uh, logical result to split the difference between not knowing which way it's going to go. I, if, if I'm Shannon Smith, if I'm the defense, I'll, I'll take that as a, oh, that's, almost, a win. that's a huge that's a win. I mean, you'd rather have a clean acquittal, but that's pretty close. I, I'll take that in a second. Speaking of falsely accused people. Can I, <laughs> can I do it? No really comment, Justin. I, We're not I, talking about it. I can't talk. I can't talk about this. You, you, did you it's change your a, mind? It's, it's against my advice. So if you want to sign yourself, I can't, I can't read it. I mean, you can sign yourself out of the emergency room, too, but, you know, it's against your doctor's orders. It's against your recommendation for me to read the season to Sizzler. Leave some of the uh, leave the names and stuff out of there if you're going to make me listen to this. Can I name the media company? You can name the media company because it's pretty obvious uh, already. So I received a season to Sis letter last week, which I immediately shared with my counsel across the the, the desk here. And... uh, this is something I kind of knew was coming. I predicted it in certain circles that I would be receiving something to this effect. And sure enough, 
brilliant call by me. So I got I to be careful here to not violate what was just told to me. Okay. So dear Mr. Spiro, please be advised that name redacted <laughs> has been retained by Chad Johnson and Woodward Sports Network. We have been made aware of your numerous harassing and defamatory social media posts regarding WSN, that's Woodward Sports Network, and specifically internal discussions allegedly involving Chad Johnson. Mr. Johnson is a respected professional in the Metro Detroit community and has spent his life building a positive reputation prior to and in connection with Woodward Sports Network. Despite having never met, let alone spoken to Mr. Johnson, you have turned to social media to harass and make defamatory statements against Mr. Johnson and WSN, specifically as to internal company dealings on which you have no personal knowledge. Your intentional and malicious spreading of inaccurate, incomplete, and unfounded information has been damaging to Mr. Johnson's personal and professional character. This goes on and on. I'm going to basically pause. It effectively ends in saying we order you to stop talking about Chad Johnson and Woodward Sports. They, the wording here, even though I'm not a, an attorney, but I went to law school. The wording here is specifically trying to, for those who are not informed about this kind of stuff, to paint the actual malice corner. So what they're doing with the wording specifically, your intentional and malicious spreading of inaccurate, et cetera, information. They're trying to meet what's called the public figure standard, which is different than the private citizen standard, where because Chad Johnson and this media company that I'm apparently defaming are public figures in their institute, public institutions, it's a higher bar to clear than if it's just, you know, your neighbor down the street that I'm saying bad shit about. They have to prove that I effectively n knew things were not true and said them anyway. And that's where you get into the intentional and, and malice and all that stuff. Wade, you're my attorney. Uh, you've reviewed this in full. Sh should I be tossing and turning about sharing accurate information that I have evidence for? You're, uh, you're an unwieldy client who just is impossible to manage. This is a perfect example, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> of how difficult my job is, is having to represent Justin who <laughs> only listens to a third of what I say. Um, not a good day. No, but uh, so this is a good learning lesson. I'm going to speak broadly out of respect for the other lawyer who I, who I, who I like. And, uh, he is nothing like his client. Uh, and me and you are more similar than there. Um, but no, I, you should not be tossing and turning Justin and defamation is thrown around defamation. And, um, it, you hear people say libel slandered and they throw these terms around without any appreciation for, uh, the, the practical nature of what they're alleging or, these, you know, lawyer letters that get sent um, to make some a client feel better, right? Like they're doing something about it or I'm tough and I'm not going to be pushed around. When in reality, not only is the hill to climb and proving a defamation case impossibly high, especially what you said with a public figure, but the practicality of bringing a defamation case um, oftentimes is 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 uh, prohibitive to, to, to most people. And I'll explain that in a minute on the actual facts of this case. Um, you know, hopefully we never have to litigate it and I, and I doubt we will, but this has nothing to do with defamation. This is, you know, information sharing. I feel like I'm in a, a law school class in New York times versus United States about, you know, publishing standards and the Pentagon papers. I mean, you're entitled to publish things that are public. You're entitled to share newsworthy information as a journalist. You're, uh, you get a certain degree of protection as well. So this, none of this is defamatory. Uh, I understand 
you know, why the lawyer is trying to give his client something to feel better. But I think he's picking the wrong fight with the wrong client. I'm telling you, right. As, <laughs> as I said, off, as I said, off the top of the bat, this is a client who welcomes uh, the fight. So it would be a huge mistake. But no, defamation, people often forget. Some I think some sophisticated people know that they've heard this term. The truth is a defense, right? So if you say something about somebody, which here this is more so about what you've shared than allegedly than it is about necessarily statements, right? I mean, it seems that way. Yes, but yeah. but nevertheless, a little, little bit of both, but for the most part, in a yeah. standard defamation case, right? The truth is a defense. If you say something that has truth to it or you reasonably thought was true, um, you know, that is a full throated defense to a defamation case. That's fact number one. Fact number two, because that's a defense, the truth is a defense. If you sue someone based on defamation for what they said, you know, you're, you know, call you, call you a name or whatever, you now open yourself to a full throated investigation of whether that's true. And oftentimes, uh, myself included, we don't want our lives pried into for stupid things we've said to friends, family, to, scorned ex-lovers to to anything and when you when you bring a defamation case you're inviting that upon yourself because you will get someone like me who li lives for this shit across from you at the table uh asking you to bring your all your emails your cellular phone your text messages related to x y and z and we're going to go through your life and show that what was said was not defamatory because there's morsels of truth to it and that's not a pleasant thing to do in a defamation case so that's why um, you better be damn sure that you want to bring it, uh, it, it before you do. Now, the flip side of that is, uh, you know, don't be reckless with your words about someone and things like that. And I've admonished you before, but this is nowhere near that because this is based on something. And uh, you're also a journalist, which which is an added layer of uh, of silliness to this to this allegation. So hopefully people are learning something from this. And uh, my answer to you, Justin, and to anyone who's curious about this beef, no, I have very little concern. And frankly, be a big mistake to pursue it because you're a willing willing and paying client that is going to let me have a blast in that case. So. Uh, yeah, I, I can't wait. And, that's, <laughs> and I will. I don't think it's going to happen. I will so have I you by my gonna... side the whole time. But just for the record, there are three other attorneys uh, and that I know are attorneys. There's a couple people offering help that I haven't vetted. <laughs> There's three other doctors. We're going to have attorneys. a heck of a team. Oh, they want to help <laughs> me pro bono because for different. They have different motivations. Some <laughs> have an issue with the other person involved. Some people just like what I do, you know. For different reasons, people are lining up to represent me for free. I think there's a MO that certain people have, certain people, not naming names, where they're going to bully people and they're going to lean on right. them and they have resources to do that. That's not going to work with me because I have the resources. I have the, the support. And also, facts on my side, well, baby. Truth. I got yeah. the hard evidence. Uh, that's the hard. That's you're talking hard. about this full-throated investigation. I'll make it real easy. I, I can send you a zip file right now. Investigation Justin, is done. We're not litigating in this on air. We've said our right, sorry. No more. So I shouldn't I shouldn't be shaking in, in my boots, basically. No, you shouldn't. And I think people I, I'm gonna make a broader point because I'm not I'm I'm supposed to be your dignified lawyer. I'm not going after <laughs> your 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 getting involved in your beef. But on a higher level, I think everyone should also realize the practical nature of these things with because I I, just as much as the next guy, I like writing mean lawyer letters. Who doesn't? I'm a good writer and it's it's fun to write it. They don't accomplish much. In fact, they probably protract problems, right? You know, maybe not in this case because there's a lot of stuff going on yeah. here. But 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 my point is just as a general matter, you know, 
generally you let things die and they didn't and they tend to do it instead people want to pick a fight and it, it just makes everything worse so i don't think this really accomplished much and they picked the wrong opponent i'm telling you for a fact it was counterproductive they kicked the, I, I, that's they kicked the ball on this one that's the last thing i'll tell you right now the last thing anyone should do is come after me with this kind of bullshit letter because you better come correct just because i don't put myself in situations where i can be justifiably sued for this kind of thing. I'm very careful with my words and I was very careful with what I said. And I have evidence of everything I said, hard, strong, concrete evidence. So you better, I know it's it's sort of habit for some people to kick people around and you're going to bully some intern that's fresh out of college. That ain't me. Okay, I'm not your huckleberry on that one. You, you got you got to find somebody else to, to put that on because I'm not going to stand for it. And respectfully, don't do it again because this is going to be escalated not by you but by me legally in a in a respectable way. I'm not going to stand for this what I view as harassment. So save your buck 50 or whatever you paid your attorney to fire off this cornball letter and and shove it because I'm not going to stand for that. I we don't play that here. I tell the truth and I have evidence for every single thing I said. Everything and a lot more that I didn't say. So Pick your battles carefully. I know you've gotten a lot of, you know, waxed the pinata from 22-year-olds that won't push back. That ain't me. So if you want to play this game, I'm in. Assign me up. I got my quarters ready. I'm going to put it in the machine. Let's go. Because I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I said nothing wrong. Bring it, man. If you want to do this, let's do it. Because to me, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Let's put it out there. Let's put all the stuff out there. If you think that's the right move for you, all right, uh, let's go. I mean, let's. I, I'm down. So if you think you're scaring me, you're not. Wade, I appreciate you. <laughs> the, be- the best and worst client of all time. I love you so well, much. Well, I just, I know I'm right. I, I'm I sorry. I, I, would, I would have a blast with this case, but I, again, my prediction this is. This case wouldn't last 10 seconds. My prediction is it's not, it's not going. He said all this shit about me that's not true. Okay, here you go, judge. Here's the evidence. Here's the smoking guns, plural. Like dozens of smoking guns. I mean, th- this case wouldn't last 10 seconds. So bring it. Can I counter sue them for this bullshit if they if they try? We are not talking attorney client okay, privilege sorry. strategy on a public Apologize. public show. These cameras you, are still on. I forget sometimes. Heated right. up client. I just I'm, I, I'm, see. This I is like, how you reel them in, folks. You guys, I, I don't like bullies. Let's take him out. I don't like bullies. I don't like people that I'm gonna fire off letter and you better shut up. It's like I don't like that. And there's people that don't have our education and our resources and our just personal context Listen, to fight this stuff. I'm not calling them dumb. There's I was dumb when I was 22. I don't. I, I hate people like that. What I appreciate when we we agree and disagree on the on on things all the time. What I have a ton of respect for you about is you are very thoughtful, very thoughtful about topics you raise. You're very thoughtful about um, news you put out there and confirming things and sources. I mean, you do things that other journalists really should should take note of because I don't think they do as good a job as you. So I am always very comfortable with. Uh, with your reporting and the things that you do, because I know how cautious you are and that well, not going to get us very far, not going to get anyone very far in a case like this because of that. Yeah, we can have a little one on one discovery. You haven't even seen some of this stuff. I, <laughs> I can't wait to show you. You're going to like the, our case even more. All right. Spiro Avenue show. Ben Augusta, great job by you. It's Thank tough, you, ben. tough covering this stuff. We're editing at the last minute because the closing statement was three hours long and was occurring like hours before we, we ran here. So, Wade, you're the man. I am going to try Thanks, to bring Justin. you back. 
in short form, sure. OTC form. Give me 15, 20 minutes when the dust settles here, if, if you're so willing. Absolutely. Anytime. Spiro Avenue Show. It. Justin Spiro, Wade Fink, he's the man. Ben Augusta, love you. Eric, love you. We'll see you.